remember what book we did last year. Pastors, you cannot answer. Actually, pastors, you should answer, but see later, right? Okay, but anybody remember what book uh, we did last year? It starts with E. Ephesians, wonderful, right? You guys are really, really good. This year, we are doing the book of Matthew, right? And, um, you know, last week, we had Matthew chapter 1, and um, overarching all of this is our church theme. Um, it's, not just, it's not just a church theme, but it really should be our life motto, right? Our life um, desire, um, and that is together we follow Jesus, right? That's what we want to achieve this year and for the rest of our years, and we want to draw from the book of Matthew uh, what this means. Now, um, I believe in the Bible. I believe in the value of the Bible. I believe in the truth of the Bible. I believe the Word of God has the power to transform. It's not just a book, it is the book. It is not just a book that has been published. Uh, you know, in this day and age, anybody can publish a book, right? If you have the time, you have the resources, if you want to put in the effort, you can get a book published, right? But that should not take away or diminish the power of the Word of God. So with that kind of understanding, I want us to approach Scripture this morning with anticipation, with expectation, with saying, instead of going, you know, impress me now with your preaching, why not we go, God, reveal to me what you want to say through the Word of God. Even if the story just kind of bears very little relevance to where you are now, but I hope I can unpackage it and help us understand together. That being said, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read um, the whole of Matthew chapter 2 um, this morning. Can we read the Bible in church? Is it okay to read the Bible in church? Yeah, we're going to have it on the screen, Matthew chapter 2, and I want you to read it along with me, okay? So everyone, loud and strong, loud and clear, let's read this together. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the reign of King Herod. About the time some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, but a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the stars first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. He went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt where with the child and his mother, the, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left with, for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord has spoken through the prophet, I will call my son out of Egypt. 
Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted for they are all dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take this child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill a child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Achilles, he was afraid to go there. And had been warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazareth. Give yourself a big round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. You just read the whole chapter of Matthew chapter 2. Well done. You know, in this story, um, I want to first highlight, um, for, those of who, for those of you who are maybe uh, Bible nerds, um, aka Pastor Fergus, right, just to fulfill those, those who um, would need to know a little bit of facts, um, let's look at a bit of a point of interest, uh, some characters, and um, some incidents in this story. Well, the first character that I want to look at is none other than the antagonist of this story, King Herod. Now, King Herod was, um, you know, he was an interesting guy. Um, he, he was actually a client king. What a client king means is basically he was a king of a region that was subject to a more powerful region. So basically he was called the king of Judea. But Judea was not a sovereign nation. It was under the rule of Rome. So Rome kind of like to appease, um, you know, uh, Judea and as well as Herod, they kind of gave him this title king. But he, Herod was not a king of his own, right? He was a king, client king of the region of Judea. The other thing about Herod is this, that he was actually raised a Jew. He was raised a Jew, so he participated in rebuilding the temple. He wanted to appease the Jews and all that. But the problem is, Herod also had a big, 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 big desire and a big, big, big tendency and habit to please his Roman rulers. So he would often, you know, bounce between two. He would pretend to be, or he would act like a Jew. He would try to appease the Jew. But other times, he would also want to appease his Roman rulers. And this caused him a lot of problems with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Because obviously, the Jews of that day, they saw that Rome uh, were occupying them. They were basically uh, subjects to Rome. And they were waiting for a Messiah to come and free them from this um, enslavement, if you want to call it, or this occupation. And so Herod would, you know, flop between appeasing Rome, but also trying to please the Jews. A little lesson in that is that sometimes what we try to do is that we try to have it both ways. We want to please God, but we also get caught up trying to make it in the world, trying to love things of the world. But you know, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says this, that if anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. You can't love both God and the world. You have to love one or hate the other. But that's, that's another sermon for another time. Another thing about Herod is this, that Herod was such an ambitious guy, um, you know, ambitious to the point of a little bit psychotic. What I mean by that is he would actually execute members of his own family. Any of you feel like doing that right now? Don't look at your family members next to you, right? And not only that, 
not only did he execute members of his own family to, to further his own political and personal ambitions, he actually executed his own wife because he felt so threatened and he felt so insecure. That was what, what, who Herod was. So that's why in the story when there was, a, there was a proclamation or a rumor that the king of Bethlehem or the king of the Jews had arrived, he got really paranoid. And he wanted the wise men to actually go and suss out this supposed king or usurper who was going to overthrow him so that he could snuff him out on his own. So that's Herod. Now, another interesting um, character or interesting figures or point of interest in this story are the wise men. So, who, are, who were these wise men? Were they three of them? Were they five of them? Were they 20 of them? If you read, Scripture says there were three of them. Some sources say there were more of them and the three were just the leaders of the wise men. But who were the wise men? Now, the wise men, the word comes from the word magus, right? That's why some Scripture, you got the translation magi. Now, what is a magi, right? Is it a magician? Were they wizards? Did they come, you know, dressed like Gandalf the Grey, wearing, you know, pointy hats? Who were they? Now, the word magi or magus, you know, back in those days, they were most probably what we understand today as astronomers, meaning people who would study the stars and also study different literature or different religious sayings, and they would try and predict and find, were there any omens in the sky that related to the events of today? And these people most likely came from the east. Now, this is a big region. It's like, when I say most likely, they came from like Yemen, um, Iraq, or Saudi Arabia. That's a big area. But where, where they came from is not entirely um, important. What's interesting though, is that these magi or these wise men they seemingly followed a star in the east. They followed this star and they were directed by it, guided by it to go and follow um, and, and to see where they would end up. And this star not only guided them, this star seemed to be actually moving. Remember the scripture said that it actually moved and it stopped over them. So what was this? Is this now a point of fiction is Scripture now, you know, making up stories, right? This is, is this now, like, you know, as some people would say, just fairy tales for children. Um, so I, I've had to put on my nerd hat, okay? So I had to borrow Pastor Ferguson's hat and put, my, and put it on, right? I had to borrow my nerd hat and I had to go and dig a little bit more. But I actually didn't, like, you know, when I was younger, just a, just a bit of, um, uh, a little bit of info about me. When I was younger, I loved reading books and encyclopedias about the stars, about like um, planets, about our solar system, about galaxies. Anybody, anybody like that? You know, I, one of my favorite shows up to today is actually Star Trek. Like, I actually watch Star Trek. Um, anybody watch Star Trek? Any Trekkies in the house? We got a few people here. Right? A few people who will be saved. Praise God, right? You know, like, I, I, love, I love Star Trek. Now, Star Wars is cool. Star Wars is great. But Star Wars is like, you know, the Force and all that. Very little science stuff in it. Let's talk Star Trek, right? Because that's like science. And, and um, so I did a bit of digging. And um, I wanted to see what was the possibilities that this Star of the East could be. So there were three possibilities that, uh, you know, after I did a bit of research. One is this. It could have either been a nova or a supernova. What is a nova or a supernova? A nova or supernova is when a star 
um, a nova is a star suddenly releases a large amount of energy, so it becomes brighter than usual. A supernova is actually when a star is completely destroyed. So when a car is completely destroyed, it lets out a big point of light. Um, projection people, I just skipped kind of two slides. Sorry, my apology. Can you skip two slides? It will come back to the two slides before. We can put that on the screen. Now, the second possibility of what the star in the east is, is that it could have been a passing comet. Now, sorry, we, we should, um, this, is, this is very, very um, not clear here, right? But um, if you look at this picture here, apologize for the, for the lack of clarity of the picture. If you look at this picture here, this, looks, this is a passing comet. So when a comet passes by the earth, you would, if it's close enough, you would see it dropping like a tail and it will be moving, right? Now, the third thing, this is where, okay, I know you're kind of like enough of the nerd talk, okay, I promise this is where we're coming to an end. So bear, bear with me a moment. The third thing and most likely possibility is that the star in the east was a planetary conjunction. Anybody know what a planetary conjunction is? Put your hand up. Can you come and explain for me? Because I read, I read this and, you know, I had to read it like 20 times before I could actually like get it, right? But this is what basically a planetary conjunction is. Now, we all know the solar system. Uh, we all agree that the earth is not flat, yes? Any flat earthers in the house will pray for you afterwards, right? The earth is not flat, okay? The earth is round, it's a planet. Can we all agree on that, okay? We also agree that the earth is part of a uh, solar system where there are other planets in this system, right? So there is um, Mercury, there's Mars, there's Venus, then there's um, you know, Jupiter, Saturn and all that. So uh, the planets orbit the sun, which is actually a star as well, but the orbits of the planet, they are not like um, circular. They are what they call elliptical. So if you imagine, it would be like an oval shape. So if you imagine the planets orbiting around the star, the sun and all that, once in a while, what would happen is that in relation to the Earth's position, two different planets will be kind of like crossing the Earth's path and the, the sun will be, be, be behind the Earth. So you can actually see the two planets. It kind of looks like they are crossing one another. We can put a picture back onto the screen if you don't mind for me. I'm not balding, praise God. All right. Uh, if you look at this little picture here, you see kind of like two little dots, two bright dots. So just imagine this is a picture of a sky, and these are two dots here. What that is, is the planets Jupiter and Saturn coming close together. So when they come close together, and if the light is bright enough, back then there was no electricity, there was no skyscraper, so you could see the sky clearly. What it will almost look like when they come together their lights will be really, really bright. The two bright lights will join and look like it's almost one. So because the Jupiter and Saturn, their orbits are not static, they are still moving, so is the Earth. That's why the star in the east seemingly moved and guided the wise men to where Jesus was. So if you're a big science geek, give me a big hand. Man. Students studying science in school, science has used one day, you'll be standing up here and you'll be like, oh my God, I wish I studied science a little bit more, right? So 
Now, back in the, back in the olden days, right? Uh, so slide people, we're going to skip back two slides, okay? Back in, the, back in the olden days, that's what people would do. They would actually consult different, uh, what they call magis or astronomers, right? And examples in, in Genesis. So in Genesis 41, I believe, there is a story mentioning Pharaoh. This is the story of Joseph. This was before Joseph became elevated to the position of prime minister in Egypt. So Pharaoh had a dream and he was disturbed by it. And this passage here talks about how Pharaoh gathered his wise men or his magicians and none of them could tell what the dream meant. And then we have another, another story in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel and his three other friends you know, they were in the land of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar also have, had a habit of consulting wise men or magicians, people who will read the stars, predict omens and all these different things. So that's where the wise men are. Now, you could be sitting here and thinking, okay, um, what does this mean? Does that mean that actually, you know, like astro- you know, astrology and all this, this kind of thing, it's actually okay for a Christian. How many of you know what astrology is, right? Yeah, some of us, you know, we're single, you know, we're looking for partners. We will go, oh, you know, I'm a Leo, therefore I must find someone who is a Gemini. Or, you know, I can't find, you know, you go, you go on a date with someone and you go, oh, you're a Pisces, I can't get together with you because, you know, my star won't align with yours and all these kind of things, right? So when I was younger, I, that's what I did as well. Like I, um, there was not much internet, so I'll read the newspapers, you know, Star 2, and then at the back there, they got comics, and then they have like your, your, your um, they have all your star signs, and you kind of go, this week, you have a good week, you go, awesome, right? But one of those, but the thing about that is it never tells you that you will have a bad week, right? So one question um, pertaining to this is that how should a Christian approach astrology because it's in the Bible? Right? Is, does that mean that actually it's okay? Does that mean that we should, you know, value the, the stars and all these kind of things? Now, it's a very big, it's an area that is worth talking about, but not something that I have time to tackle. If you are interested, um, we're going to put that link up, uh, tiny.cc horoscopes. Like, if you want to know whether, uh, whether like, um, don't worry, this is, not going to, this is not guiding you to, to find out your star sign and all that. This is actually a, it's a shortened link to an article that I wrote whether I think Christians should actually believe or even follow astrology, all right? If you want, you can do that in your own time because we've got other stuff that we need to tackle this morning. Now, that, that's the point of interest, um, the, you know, different things in the Scripture here. But right now, I want to preach to you from this passage, how would it now apply to us? And the topic that I have, the title that I have this morning is this, what will you bring? What will you bring? And you know the Magi, what they did was, they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What did this gift symbolize and what did it mean? So I'm going to look at this tree. I went in and I looked at this tree, different gifts and what did they mean and why did they bring these gifts? Because, you know, if you think about it, you would actually, if you go and visit someone, um, if someone has a new baby and all that, it's customary to bring them gifts. Usually what we will bring is we will bring gifts that would uh, be really practical for them, right? That will help them out. You know, we will bring diapers, we bring, um, diff- you know, we bring formula, we bring, you know, vouchers and all these different things, right? So what caused the wise men or this magi 
to bring these three different gifts to Jesus, baby Jesus, and why is this significant and how does it apply to us? Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, you can see that, right? They, bring, they brought the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The first symbol or the first gift, the gift of gold. Why is this significant? First of all, the gift of gold is only given to kings. You will bring a gift of gold to someone in the olden days when you recognize that this person is a king. The queen of Sheba, when she visited King Solomon, what she did was she brought gifts of gold. It kind of doesn't make sense, right? It's like as a king, you're probably already rich. Why do you need more gold, right? You, we often think of when we bring gifts, we bring something that, that uh, we bring what people need. But in the olden days, they don't just bring what people need, they brought what they thought that person deserved. So the Magi had this revelation that this is the king of the Jews, this is the Messiah. They brought gold and they wanted to give him gold because they recognized him as king. The first point, my first point this morning is this gold points to his royalty Therefore, we should recognize him as king. And to illustrate this um, um, idea, I'm going to get some people to help me out. Could we get those, my, my friends here on the floor to help me out? And we're going to get... I want you to imagine now. I like, I like preaching. I like thinking illustrations. Imagine now if your heart was a throne and... Imagine if this was a throne. Sorry, it's not a very... We couldn't get a throne on such short notice, okay? I would, have got, I, would have got a, I would have gotten the Iron Throne from Game of Thrones, but sorry, short notice, right? Can't do it. But this is a throne. Imagine that is a throne. And our heart only has one throne, all right? And hold up the words for me so that everyone could see them. And what we understand or what we know is that by right, Jesus, come here, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus should be on the throne. But what often happens is that things get in the way. Different things come along and we decide. And so for example, right, um, success, you know, will come in along the way. And success will come and then we will go, you know, Jesus, you, you take a break for a while. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> and... I'll put success here on the throne. Sometimes it, not, it, may, it may not be success. It may be that family gets along in a way. Do you know that a family can be an idol as well? That we put the family on the throne of our hearts and we go, everything we want to do is only about family. Or still, sometimes it could be about approval or popularity. That we only want to please people. We only want to seek validation. We only want to be insta-famous. We want to do all this. We want to be an influencer. We, look at, we, we go out and search for different things. We live our life in a way that will only pursue popularity and then we kind of like discard Jesus to the side. But even worse, sometimes we bring about ministry. Ministry becomes our idol. Do you know that you can actually serve God but not necessarily worship Him? 
You could actually be doing ministry, but your heart is like so far away from God. You could be desiring position, but not desiring the person that ministry is for. And then beyond all of that, what we really have on the throne is ourself. I determine the course of my life. I determine what is best for me. I determine where my life should go, where I should live, what I should do. I. But when the Magi brought the gifts of gold, they recognized him as king. It points to his royalty. Therefore, we, when we come to Jesus this year, together we follow Jesus, the theme of discipleship, will we first bring a heart that recognizes, come back here, Jesus. Jesus is king, and he is on the throne of our lives. And everything else, just going to stand around, just get, get, get you to stand around the throne right here. And everything else that comes along the way, we don't go to our family first to decide what we should do with our lives. We don't go to our relationships, our need to find a partner, our desire, nothing wrong with finding a partner. We don't go to relationships and go, what should we do with my life? How should I choose my life? Where should I go? Where should I go on a weekend? We don't, go to, we don't let the, one, the, the desire to want more dictate how we should live our life. Instead, we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, what do you think about all of these things? How do you want me to view all these different things. Recognize Him as King. Can you give my friends a big hand, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you very much. Thank you. Recognize Him as King. Because here's the deal. What holds your heart determines what you pursue and what you pursue determines who you become. If you are in a place where you are now, you feel upset, you feel bitter, you feel angry, you're always frustrated, you know, you're, you feel stuck, it's a time now to stop and ask, what have I been pursuing in my life? And when we find out what have I been pursuing in my life, then the answer of what really holds our heart can be answered. Now, make no mistake about it. That's not mean that if you put Jesus, you know, in the throne of your heart, that will mean that everything will be okay, that you'll be a perfect person. No, but you will begin to have a greater perspective, a better perspective, a clearer idea of who you ought to be and who you want to become. You know, one of the things that I want to become is I want to become not just, I want to become a better husband and a good father. And uh, Pastor, I remember Pastor Lee Chu um, telling me this, right, that um, one of the greatest tools of discipleship is to get married because then you will really learn to die to self. Those who are married, those who are married, you know, do you agree with me? Right? So those of you who are single, go and get married. But if you're, you know, bash your parents first, okay? But the second thing that, uh, and then after that, I was like, whoa, okay, wow. And then Pastor Lee Chu added some more. And she was like, but the even greater tool 
than that is when you have children. Because then you have to lagi die to yourself. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I used to think I was like an okay guy. Yeah, I thought I was an okay guy, you know, and I thought like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty okay, you know, I, I have my weaknesses, but generally I'm all right. But then when I got married, I realized, wow, yes, there is so much in me that still thinks only about me. And then even more when I have a child, like, you know, it beca- there's a lot of adjustments because you start, th- you start realizing that, wow, all this time you've been living for yourself, but now suddenly you have to live and you have to accommodate others along with you. And that, you know, that in order to go on that kind of journey, you need to have a revelation of God in your heart that He should be king. Because it's very easy to go, you know, get off Jesus, right? I'll be king. I decide what's best for me. I decide what kind of career I want to have. I decide what, how, what kind of, don't tell me how to run my family. Don't tell me how to behave because I am my own boss. But this year, as we together, we follow Jesus. Will you bring a heart that puts Jesus number one? He is on the throne of our lives. Now, the second gift here was the gift of frankincense. Now, what is this frankincense thing? Now, this frankincense thing is actually an um, aromatic gum. Basically, it's harvested by scraping off the bark of this tree, and then they harvest it, they process it, and it becomes uh, something that is fragrant, right? It kind of looks like raisins. But what you do with these little gum things, right, is that when you actually... Um, burn it and all that, it, you, can, you actually use it and create it as incense and sometimes people use it as perfume and all that kind of stuff but the thing about frankincense is that it's actually really, really valuable. In fact, some sources say that it was probably, it probably costs more if not equal to the gold that the Magi brought. So this was something that was valuable and it was also a symbol. Why did the Magi bring this to Jesus? The second point is this. Frankincense points to his deity. Therefore, we should revere him as God. You know in the book of Exodus when Moses was instructed on how to um, build the temple and how to worship onto him, frankincense is actually mentioned that it is to be used as incense burned onto the Lord, pure frankincense. Let's go to the next scripture. And it says this, right? Never use this formula. So you can, the formula talks about frankincense and a whole bunch of other things, but frankincense was the main ingredient. But it says this in verse 37, never use this formula to make this incense for yourselves. It is reserved for the Lord and you must treat it as holy. Not you should treat it as holy. Maybe you should treat it as holy. If you feel like it, treat it as holy. No, you must Treat it as holy. Do we, will we bring a life that shows our reverence for God? Now, make no mistake about it. I believe God, uh, there are many aspects to our relationship with God. God is our friend. God is our brother. God is our helper. God is our counselor. But let's not forget that God is also our king and God is also God. And God is holy. 
God is holy. So when we come to the things of God, let's not treat it in an unholy manner. And do you know what the opposite of holy is? The opposite of um, holy is it's not like um, unholy or disgusting or bad. Yeah, it, it may mean some of these things, but the opposite of holy is to treat as common. So when we come to church, this is the house of God, would we treat the house of God as common ground? When we come to worship, oh my friends, let's never treat worship as common. Let's not think that, oh, you know, worship, I don't want to sing the songs today. I don't like the worship leader today. I don't, and, and you know, church, what, what time does church start? Church starts at? 11, right? Okay, there's a bit of announcements and all that. What time does worship start? Worship starts at 11.15. So, Let's not have this idea or posture that, wow, I'll just come for the sermon or I'll just appear at church. No, when we come to church, let's not treat the things of God as common, but let's treat it with reverence. Let's treat it as like, you know, I have an appointment with God. Now, if anybody of you had an appointment with someone important, would you actually do all that you can to be late? No, you'll be, you do everything you can to be on time. If you had an appointment, a business appointment, an um, appointment with a CEO or someone who's going to invest in your venture, you're going to be on time, if not early. All the more, we have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has already done so much for us and He will do even more. How should we not now treat the things of God, the church of God, as holy, revere Him? The other thing that we should treat as holy and revere is the Word of God. And the sermons as preached from this pulpit. You know, one of the things about the Word of God is that sometimes uh, I, get, I get a little bit, um, I get, if I'll be honest, sometimes I get a little bit tired preaching. Because at the end of the day, it, it doesn't just take a lot of energy on that. But you begin to wonder, do people actually apply this stuff? You know what I mean? It's like... What, what, if I get up here and I preach to you the Word of God, I tell you this is what the Word of God says, this is how it should apply to your life. Like for example, the Word of God says that you should recognize Him as King. How many of us will walk out of this sanctuary and actually go, yeah, I'm going to make Him my King? Because there, 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 is no, there is no need for further preaching. There is no need for further revelation. There is just more need for obedience and trust to go, yes, this is now sometimes when we come to a sermon, we don't even need to hear new information. We just need to be reminded about a journey, about a track that we should be on. But do we treat the Word of God as holy? Do you treat the life that is given to you as holy? What do I mean by that? All of us, without exception, we are only given one shot, one breath at this life. The gift of life, your life is a gift from God to you, what you do with your life can be a gift back onto God. How would you live your life? Would you treat your life and look at it, instead of looking at all the problems and all the difficulties, would you see now your life as go, wow, if I am on this earth, it's because I, it's because I have the breath of God in me. It's because I carry the image of God within me. Therefore, when I recognize this, I understand this, my life cannot be the same. My life is not just for myself. And my life is not just to chug along and, you know, do things my way. My life should be a pleasing sacrifice, 
a pleasing aroma onto the Lord. Because worship is not just with our lips, it's also with our lives. Romans chapter 12 says this, right? One of my favorite scriptures. Paul says this, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead. So here, this, uh, this morning, John Ngan here pleads with you as well. To give your bodies or lives to God because of all He has done for you. Let this be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind you will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Because get this, there's no point coming here on a Sunday, we lift our hands up, but we don't lay our lives down. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. What are you modeling your life on? What are you fashioning your thoughts, your values on? Is it what the world says, what this different guru says, or what the Word of God, what Jesus says? But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because when you follow the ways of God, you will most certainly flow into the will of God. Don't get caught up wanting to know what is the will of God. Just go in daily obedience and suddenly you will find that you're walking on the right track and God will reveal His plan to you. I did not end up where I am today trying to plot or conceive or plan where I would go and all that. I just live my life day by day, obedience to Him. Obedience to Him. And here's the thing about a living sacrifice. You know, in the olden days when they sacrificed animals, um, the animal kind of has no choice. They don't go to the goat and go, hey goat, like um, you live quite, quite long now, right? And uh, all the other goats kind of don't really like you, so we're going to sacrifice you. Is that okay? And then they go, back, bear, it's okay, right? And they're sorry, right? And they don't, they don't consult the goat, right? They take the goat or the sheep and they bring it to the altar and that's it, he's dead, he's sacrificed. But Paul talks about a living sacrifice. So people with an idea about this, you as a living sacrifice, what is a living sacrifice? A living sacrifice has to be willing. We have to go and go, yes, I will lay my life down. But the other thing about sacrifice, I noticed in the Old Testament, when they sacrifice animals onto God, they don't go like, you know, we're kind of like on a budget. This, um, you know, hey, hey, Aaron and Levi, come on, what's the budget this year? Oh, we're kind of like go, going above our expenditure. Let's lower the budget for sacrifices, right? Okay, let's bring the sheep here. Let's only sacrifice the shoulder this time around. God kind of knows we're on a budget. He'll be okay, right? No, they bring the whole sheep and they sacrifice the whole thing. So a living sacrifice not only gives itself of willingly, it has to also give or we have to also give all of us, not some of us. Not a little bit of us, not some areas and stuff like, God, you're in charge of my weekends, I'll give you my weekend. Monday to Friday, I do it on my own. God, I'll give you my daytime, but nighttime is mine. I want to do things my way. I want to do things my way. Whatever that we do, my friends, I'm convinced of this fact, because it's the truth. We can fool people, people may not see, but God sees. God sees, God sees. So, Will we give ourselves, will we live a life that shows reverence to Him as God? And I'm not even talking about living a perfect life, but we all know in our own hearts what we are aligned to or what we are inclined to. You know, Timothy says this, 
the, Tim- the scripture of Timothy says this, God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserve it, but because that was His plan from before the beginning of time. And my last point is this. We can get the band up here. The gift of Mir. Now, what was the gift of Mir? The gift of Mir, it was also an aromatic gum, or it became, when they harvested, it became a bit more like a spice. What it was used for, yeah, it's used as incense. It can be used as perfume. It was a little bit cheaper than frankincense. So what, they, what people will often do is they will use it for more daily and common use. But interestingly, it was also actually used to embalm bodies. You know, when they, when they prepare someone for a burial, they will put little different spices on there so that the smell will not permeate or you will not come out. The body of Jesus is mentioned in John chapter 19. After he was crucified and he died on the cross, they prepare his body and they put it with these spices as well. So what does the gift of mere point to? The gift of mere points to his humanity relate to him as man. God, first and foremost, doesn't just desire your obedience. You know what He actually desires? God desires our relationship. Before we recognize Him as King, yeah, we should recognize His King. Before we revere Him as God, yeah, we should revere Him as God. More than all of that, God wants us to have a personal relationship with Him. One that goes beyond just listening to sermons on a Sunday. One that goes beyond just going to cell on a Friday or Wednesday night. One that just goes beyond um, doing things for Him, but one that would actually relate to Him, that we would speak to Him and we would allow Him to speak to us. That we would have a personal revelation of God because that's the beginning of discipleship. The beginning of discipleship or following Jesus is not doing, it's just being with Him. It's relating to Him. It's coming to Him with all that we have. And sometimes what we have may not be a lot. Some of us here, we have this idea that God wants us to be perfect and then only He would accept us. Let me tell you, this anti-gospel. If God, if we didn't, if we didn't need God, He wouldn't have come on the cross. If we can do things on our own, He would have never come onto this earth as a man, relate to us as human beings and die on the cross for us. So some of us have this idea that I must clean up my life or that the church will never accept me. Yeah, maybe the church will never accept you but God will never reject you. You know, or, or maybe like, how can God, you know, how can God accept me because I've done all these things or that I'm this kind of person or that let me tell you, God loves you so much that He will accept you the way you are, but He loves you more that He would not want you to remain the same. But the changing is not for us modifying our behavior, but it's us submitting more to God. It's not about trying harder, the Christian life. It's about trusting more and more and more in Him. You know, the assurance is this, Hebrews chapter 4. This is the assurance that we have. Since then, we have a great high priest, speaks of Jesus, who has entered heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what 
we believe. And look at this. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we did, yet he did not sin. So let us now come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. One of my favourite prayers is this, Jesus, help me. Jesus, I can't do it, help me. And that's the great thing, Jesus always responds. He always answers. He's not looking for people who have it all. He's looking for people who will give it all to Him, who will surrender, who will say, yes, God, I will trust you. Yes, God, I will follow you. So to summarize this, the three things that the Magi brought, the gift of gold pointed to His royalty, recognize Him as King. Frankincense pointed to His deity, revere Him as God. Myrrh pointed to His humanity, relate to Him as a man because He came in flesh and blood like you and I. If you think God will never understand, you're mistaken, my friend. God understands and even more. He felt it. He experienced it. Whatever you're going through, betrayal, oh, He felt that. Loneliness, oh, He felt that. Frustration, He felt that. Being lost, He felt that as well in the Garden of Gethsemane. He felt all of that. And we have a high priest so we can be assured that when we come to God, God is not going to look at us judgmentally, but God is going to look at us graciously and by His Spirit, we can move on.